0: Block TALK RADIO
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Across the Arts on Blog TALK RADIO. I'm your host, Patrick D. McCoy. Today we have a very special guest as we inaugurate the Conversation Series, a new series featuring inspiring chats with figures in the performing arts and beyond. Today's guest is an important voice in the world of classical music, Currently the chief classical music critic for the Washington Post, Anne Majette is a graduate of Yale University. Over her career, she has reviewed opera, music, and art throughout Europe for the Wall Street Journal, Opera News, and other publications. Returning to the United States, she became the first woman to review classical music for the New York Times on a regular basis in 2001. She continued as a classical music critic, theater critic, and arts writer for the newspaper from 2001 to 2007. In 2008, Majette landed at the Washington Post as the newspaper's chief classical music critic. Please welcome to the show, Anne Majette. Good morning, Anne.
0: Good morning, Ann. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, my goodness. It's such a pleasure and an honor to have you on today to talk about your career at the Washington Post as chief music classical critic. So I want to ask you, when someone hears the word music critic, sometimes when people think about the word critic or criticism, it can have a, a, a kind of a negative connotation. What does music criticism mean to you?
0: Well, it's funny because I grew up in a family of artists, and so I thought critics were horrible, nasty negative people and um, <laughs> The fact that I ended up as a critic makes me kind of the black sheep of my family. <laughs> obviously, I've modified my views quite a bit but uh, but it's a it's a critic's job really to um to get us talking about the arts, to have a conversation. I mean, the arts are so wonderful and so vital, but I think, I believe passionately that you want to engage with them more deeply than just going, wasn't that grand? Wasn't that great? Um, I think everybody wants more of, an, of a Uh, relationship with them and criticism is one way to allow that to happen by sparking the conversation I really believe it's not the critics job to get you to agree with him or her it's the critics job to get you talking and sometimes by disagreeing with somebody you can become more articulate about what it is that you feel and it's by bouncing those ideas off the opposite wall as it were that you begin to hone your reaction And um, those debates just take you deeper into the love of the art form, and um, whether you do or don't like a given performance is hardly the point. The point is to keep the conversation going.
1: You kind of already hinted at your family. Talk about, to me, like your early interest in music and the performing arts. How did that come about?
0: Well, as I said, I grew up in a family of artists. that was kind of bizarre, and I didn't realize how remarkable it was. My father was a painter um, who had an art gallery and had one-man shows in New York. Um, my aunt played first violin with the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra for decades. Um, my other aunt was married to an opera singer, um, Alan Titus, who was quite well-known. He's now retired. Um, Another aunt danced with the Paul Taylor Company and then left Paul Taylor to found her own company. Her name is Senta Driver, and she's still very well regarded in choreographic circles. And another aunt was a freelance um, oboe and English horn player in New York. Um, and she used to take me to rehearsal occasionally, and I heard with her, for example, my first ever handless Julius Caesar when I was quite small. I'd never heard a countertenor before, and I was just fascinated by the countertenor. So um, so that was hugely influential. I grew up talking, thinking about art, and kind of exposed to art. Um, that said, the visual arts, because of my father, were really my first point of entry beyond literature and writing, which was always sort of mother's milk to me, and um music was sort of a a later love. I've always felt that I came very late to music because it wasn't until I was about 10 that I took up violin lessons and that I began singing well enough to get into a chorus I had to audition for. And 10, even when I was 10, seemed incredibly late. Um, There were many kids at my school who were prodigies and um, one woman gave her debut at town hall when she was 10. So so I've always felt like a, a late bloomer and kind of a non musician, although I have been very passionately involved with music, um, pretty much ever since.
1: Now you mentioned Handel's Julius Caesar. I came across a wonderful article, if I'm not mistaken, back in two thousand sixteen when you reflected on your first experience as a young child with Handel's Messiah. Could you maybe share a That's little bit true. about that?
0: Yes, it was. Um, it was one of the ubiquitous Messiah sing-alongs. I suppose in the 1970s, they weren't quite as ubiquitous as they are now, but it was at Avery Fisher Hall, now David Geffen Hall, the main concert venue in at Lincoln Center. And my mother took me um, to go sing Handel's Messiah, which I hadn't known well. And it was it was very exciting and a big challenge, and it was a wonderful sort of mother-daughter outing. My mother had sung it in Symphony Hall in Boston when she was in high school, um, in the chorus. And um, and yes, it, it stayed with me as, as a touchstone, particularly my mother's injunction to stay quiet during the rest of the Hallelujah Chorus. I still have a residual um, anxiety, lest someone might come in too early, which I confess I never have actually heard them do, but... <laughs> <laughs> but everybody's <my mother's laughs> teaching died hard in that.
1: <laughs> now, you're, let's move a little bit ahead. Now, your career journey, you spent um, a good part of your early career in Europe. And uh, could you maybe talk about how was that transition like when you were writing in Europe and then you had to make the transition to come back to the U.S. to start, um, let's say, when you moved to the New York Times? Talk a little bit about that.
0: Well, I'd been in Europe for 11 years, and while there, I began um, in journalism. Not I sort of happened into it. I had gone over to write my novel, and I wrote the novel, and it didn't get published, and various things happened in my life, and I found myself editing a magazine and feeling like a failure. And um, and from that magazine, my journalism career took off as I'd never expected it to, and I found myself writing for Opera News and the Wall Street Journal and traveling around Europe and writing travel guidebooks and going to opera performances in European capitals, and it was really quite amazing, and I I really enjoyed it while I was doing it, too. I didn't I I didn't fail to appreciate the opportunities I had. But there came a point when I thought, okay, I could do this for the next 30 years. At the level I'm at, you know, it doesn't get much better than writing for the Wall Street Journal. But there's no clear career path for me. And I'm traveling all the time. And I, I want to know what the next step is. So I kind of picked up after 11 years and moved back to America, which felt like a huge upheaval and jolt. I had many, many close friends there and a whole life there. That I kind of left and um, I came back to New York and started over. Although I was so happy to be back in New York that I didn't doubt that I'd made the right decision. And um, I kicked around for a couple years freelancing, still writing for the Wall Street Journal and for other places. And I did some work with a dot com startup that was sort of a precursor to iTunes. And then I got married. I met my husband. And then the New York Times called. And they actually called just after I was married. I'd been married for about six weeks. And I thought, okay this is a good time for me to step back from journalism and go back into creative writing. I've kind of done the journalism thing, and then the New York Times called, and I thought, well, I've worked so hard at this, I really should – do this for a year or two. I mean, it's the New York Times and these opportunities don't come along. Um, I'll be clear that the New York Times, I was only ever a freelancer at the Times, but the way they do with their music critics, at least then, they have to invite you to become a freelancer and then you're kind of a regular freelancer. So I went to the meeting every week and I was assigned a bunch of concerts every week. I went out, you know, pretty much as much as I do as chief critic in Washington. I had less space and a lot less money, but uh, but they kept me very, very busy. (laughs) Um, But uh, so that's how I that's how I segued into that. And it was very funny to me and very scary when I began to be a full time classical music critic because what I maybe didn't make clear in Europe, but I was writing about everything. And I was writing about mainly the visual arts and opera with some theater and some film, but very little instrumental music that I write about um, before I came to New York. And I felt like it was a huge learning curve and very daunting to be the Times music critic. I've since realized that being a classical music critic is a learning curve for everybody because there are so many things you're supposed to be knowledgeable about that everybody's going to have a couple of places where they really need to catch up. And sometimes when you catch up, you become more articulate in that. You can explain it better because you've worked harder to attain it yourself. So it's easier for you to convey to an audience than something that you know so intimately you may forget to fill in the, uh, the background and then you come come off as being snooty. So uh it's it's a more nuanced thing than I thought it was when I came in when I just thought you ought to be an expert in everything and since I don't have a degree in music I am a fraud and an imposter. I uh I have since met numerous other critics who don't have a degree in music and we all bumble <laughs> along together. <laughs>
1: So, so, let's talk about that there. Do you ever get people who might approach you in a in a kind of a, in a like a negative way like well, you don't have a training formal training in music. how are you able to speak about um music in such a way to be a music critic? Do people ever say anything like that have an opinion oh, of that well, nature? People-
0: People are broad in their insults. People often don't worry about the training. They just say, you're an idiot. How do you speak about music? You clearly know nothing. <laughs> and not bother about the facts. People are always telling me, you clearly have never studied singing. And singing is the one thing I did study privately for a very long time when I was in Germany. I was quite committed to it, although I did study privately and I never quit my day job. Um But I myself was very um, sensitive about not having the proper training. Um, And it was my husband who um, helped me see it differently. My husband does have all the training that I wish I had. He has a a degree in composition from the Yale School of Music. He's a composer. He was a singer. Um, And he said, there are writers who write about music, and there are musicians who write about music. And... Neither is more privileged than the other, and I realize that when he and I review about things, we have very different insights often. But we often get to very much the same place. That is to say, our our judgments are not dissimilar, but our our arsenal, the arrows and our quiver, are different. And everybody's going to do that. Everybody has different quivers and arrows in their quiver. Um, so I'm I'm much more confident about doing it, although I do wish I had a degree in music because I have this feeling that it would have given me at least a better background to start with. That said, I spent all those years in Europe traveling around and educating myself. And um, when I felt I didn't know enough about Schubert, I called the Wall Street Journal and said, hey, it's Schubert's anniversary why not I go to Vienna and do a Schubert piece and they said great go for it and I went to Vienna and did a Schubert piece and it was a week of intoxicating music and immersion in Schubert and I was reading and I was going to concerts and as far as my Schubert experience I don't know that I would trade that for a three-hour long lecture class on Schubert <laughs> you know they could complement each other but but my week in Vienna wasn't too bad as an introduction <laughs>
1: Wow! So you had a real life experience, you know, right there, immersed in all of that that culture that is so amazing. That's exactly. sometimes you know, books, books, you know, books, you know, you can read about it in a book, but you actually went and saw and experienced, and that's that's so, totally amazing. So let's move forward to your Washington years. You came here in two thousand eight. Uh, Tim Page with the critic before you, and you're here in Washington, and now you're the the chief classical music critic and so that that title i'm sure is, is, is it has a lot of responsibility now being a, being, of course as i mentioned you, you're the classical music critic people look for your voice you know good bad otherwise um your views your thoughts on classical music talk to me i want to talk a little bit about this recent performance this is just i think i saw it came out on my birthday november 18th <laughs> you went and saw um tristan and Isolde. Wagner before by the National Symphony and one of the things that stood up me as I read the review you noted that you know it seemed that you know the National Symphony Orchestra really came came into its, its bloom, uh, like many of the other orchestras when they perform, uh, you know, in New York. Particularly, you have visiting orchestras who, who come to the Kennedy Center and they they perform at a certain level, and then the National Symphony performs at a certain level. But it's more optimal when they go to New York. Could you maybe kind of talk about like how do you arrive at your uh, sort of your viewpoints, and how do you communicate that to the audits. The audience, the the readers so that they kinda understand where you're coming from.
0: Well, my first premise about a review is that it's the job of the review to tell the story of the event, whatever the story is. You've got to figure out what the story is. So rather than just go through a checklist of, okay, I'm going to mention the conductor, I'm going to mention the piece, I'm going to mention this, you want to figure out what would you tell your friend if you went out for a drink afterwards? Like, what is the thing that you want to communicate about the concert? And um, that's the most important thing. And one of the highest things to reach for, which I which one never achieves as often as one would like is um, to be able to communicate it in such a way that somebody might read it and know they would have a different opinion from the one you had. That is a, P, a concert that you say hated, but you describe it in such a way that somebody reading it would think I would have loved that concert or vice versa. Mm. And on the, on the times when that happens, I'm always really pleased that I, I sort of did it justice. Um, you don't want to just present things from the lens of your own feelings and, the, and it's not just a consumer thumbs up, thumbs down Experience It should be something that's that's worth reading and worth thinking about if you're taking up space in the newspaper and space in your readers' minds um, as far as the observation about new york it's funny because that came to me belatedly um, as the chief critic, of course, I have gotten in Washington to pick whatever I wanted to review. I get to say what gets covered and what doesn't get covered um, within reason and with space constraints and all of that. And it's a constantly shifting picture of how we cover things and how much can get covered and what there's room for and what people want to read. Um, it's a, a It has to be a dynamic discussion. Um, and there's been a lot of changes over time, but um, I was exhilarated when I got to Washington because I got to review all the good stuff, where in New York I got some good stuff, but I got a lot of you know debut recitals and the smaller stuff, and of course the chief critic in New York, Anthony Tomasini, would review the big, the big orchestras that came to town. Um, but it took me a while to really internalize the fact that the concerts in New York tended to be better and that you would hear some very good performance by a very good orchestra of some standard repertory. And then they would go to New York and offer like a world premiere of something funky over two nights. And everybody is yelling, did you hear that amazing concert? And it always just had a little more electricity than it did in Washington. Now that's really nobody's fault. New York is a culture capital playing at Carnegie hall is, has a cachet that even the Kennedy center was a lot of cachet doesn't quite have. And you can't blame an ensemble for being extra revved up for New York. Um, And the same is true for the National Symphony Orchestra. They play at the Kennedy Center all the time, and then they go to New York, and they haven't gotten that many invitations to New York recently, especially not to Lincoln Center when they've been. They've been a couple times to Carnegie Hall since I've been here. I think three times, maybe four times to Carnegie Hall um, in the 11 years I've been here. But Lincoln Center, I haven't seen them play there, and um, they got that because of the reputation and and popularity of their music director, John Andrea Noseda. And... um, So it's not surprising they would step up their game a little bit. I was just delighted because I felt that they really stepped up their game and then Noseda also modified his approach and turned what had not to me felt like a successful evening in Washington into a real success in New York. Um, And Noseda is wildly popular in New York in any case, so all the preconditions were right Um, But it was it was one of those nights where I was really happy to have gone to both performances. As I said in the review, seeing the contrast between two performances is always a nice thing and helps you helps one remember oneself that one is not hopelessly jaded as a critic,
1: you know, hearing the
0: things one expects to hear. (laughs)
1: Well, that's fascinating that you can have all of that, that perspective, and, and I hope that the listeners to this interview can really hear that, because sometimes when you just see something on the page, it, it's one thing, but just to hear it expressed the way you did there, that that was very important, so thank you so much. Now, recently, well, not too recent, but it was recent enough, I had the opportunity to go with a group of friends. We went to the movies, and we saw the Pavarotti documentary um but one of the fascinating things whether the surprise was we looked at the screen and we saw you <laughs> there <laughs> your, I was on the big screen <laughs> so could you maybe share with the listeners how did you um have an interest uh in Luciano Pavarotti's career and maybe talk about how the association came that you would end up writing this book The King and I
0: Yeah, um I've always been an opera person um Opera has been my my real passion ever since I was 17 years old and saw a film of Traviata. I was, of course, primed because I had this opera singer uncle, so I would go hear him, and so I was exposed to opera from a young age. Um, But opera's really my thing. And when I came to the New York Times, I was kind of the opera person. A lot of classical music critics are much more orchestra instrumental people, and so they didn't have a a big opera person on staff either, and that was a little bit my role. Um, And it was in my, I think, Second year at the New York Times and uh, my husband, I was sitting in the living room and working at home. I didn't have an office and my husband comes in and said he just had a call from the publisher of Doubleday Books and they had wanted to do a Pavarotti book um, with Pavarotti's former manager but the writer had dropped out but they wanted to do the book and so they had called my husband um who's also a critic and blogger and consultant and composer as i mentioned before greg Sando, and asked if greg would be interested and um the way I tell it, I, Greg said, "Oh, maybe if I was twenty years younger, I would do it." And I said, "But I am twenty years younger." But <laughs> <That's a>, in <laughs> fact, Greg Greg had already said to Steve, "Have you thought about Anne?" And Steve Rubin, the publisher of Doubleday, and Steve said he had, and he'd read me in the Times, and um, so they. Brought me in to talk to Herbert Breslin to see if I could write this book. I was sitting at home minding my own business. I didn't pitch the story. I didn't have a particular thing about Pavarotti, except that a couple of years before I had done a big cover story for Opera News about Pavarotti. And I had tried to get to interview him in Italy, and it took ages because Herbert Breslin, this mercurial manager, scheduled me for a time when he knew Pavarotti was not going to be there, and, and it was very complicated. So I had had this sort of interaction with Pavarotti, I had some background on him and um and yes the rest is history i wrote the book i was very dubious about writing the book because breslin was a very um nefarious character notorious character i should say and um i wasn't sure if i was going to ruin my reputation forever but working on the book proved to be a lot of fun and i still stand by that book and um herbert and i remained friends to his death and it's it's it was a fun book i'm i'm happy about the book so of course fast forward Ten years after Pavarotti's death, there were people doing documentary films about Pavarotti, and there was actually one, about, one by Arte that came out first, and then I got a call from this group that said Ron Howard is going to do this Pavarotti documentary, and they were looking to see if I had any audio tapes and you know i'm sure somewhere i do but i have a lot of boxes i kept looking for the darn audio tapes of breslin of Pavarotti, but uh, i couldn't find anything but you know they were bouncing ideas off me too because clearly i had spent some time immersed for this book and um and i was pretty pretty salty with them i'd already been dealing with one documentary team and i thought they seemed like they were going to be making a bit of a hagiography and i was i was um tart shall I say in my responses and I don't think they were getting a lot of tart I think they were getting a lot of oh Luciano's wonderful and I'm like make sure you put in this part and this part and uh, finally they said to me do you want to come up and be interviewed and I said oh don't be silly I said you're talking to Placido Domingo and Bono you're not going to use me you'll interview me and then it'll end up on the cutting room floor and it's a waste of my time and they're like no 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 you have to come so I went up and they interviewed me and I really thought that was that and they called me shortly before the film came out and were like well you are in it and I said, "Oh, that's nice that I made it." And then I began getting calls from friends who had seen it, who were like, "You're really in this movie!" And I had quite a few appearances. So, so when you say you were surprised to see me, I too was surprised to see me.
1: <laughs> I even took out my cell phone and took a picture of the screen. <laughs> Yeah, and I certainly want to thank you for being so gracious with this interview. And I just want to really move ahead now to really uh, allow you to share with the listeners. Um, just recently it was announced that you were leaving the Washington Post, and it literally surprised a lot of people in the classical music arena. Um, in your own words, could you maybe share with the listeners what brought you to your decision to leave your post as chief? Classical music critic at the Post.
0: Well, I've been doing it for eleven years at the Post, and I was at the Times for seven years before that. Um, and I mentioned, I mentioned before when the Times called me, I was just about to leave journalism and go write my book, and um, that's never happened. And that desire has never quite left me. And I reached a point where I thought, you know, if I don't do it, it's never going to happen. And I have made some valiant efforts to write this book on the side while working, and it's very difficult to do without a book leave. Um, I'm working on a historical novel, so I can't get a contract for it until I've written the whole thing, um, unlike the Pavarotti book or the Leon Fleischer book that I later wrote, both for Doubleday, um, both of which the contract, of course, comes out before the book is written in a case like that. Um, So it's something I've been thinking about doing for a long time, and the moment just became clear. I figured out we figured out a way to make it work for us financially. Obviously, it's a bit of a, a leap of faith, um, but we can we can make it fly for a while. And um, and it was clear to me that that I had had my say. That it was time for new voices. Eleven years is a long time. I, I don't want to feel stale or stagnant, or that I'm not doing my best work, or that my work years ago was much better. Um, and I also don't want this to be the only thing I do. I don't want to be 70 years old and sitting on my deathbed kind of regretting that I didn't, I mean, not that 70 is going to die, please, young 70, <laughs> but still. Um, um, I don't want to be saying I didn't uh, I didn't do what I wanted, you know, how funny that I ended my days as a classical music critic. Um, I've really loved this job, and I've poured myself into this job and given it, everything and um that's another reason i think it's time to move on you you know there's no more i don't have any more to give i don't have any more reinvention to do and you have to keep reinventing yourself in a job like this you know your reader tomorrow doesn't care what you wrote two years ago they don't even care that you covered that artist two years ago every day has to be fresh and new and um so i'm really excited to see who my successor will be and how they'll tackle it it's great news for the field that there's going to be a successor and um and I have no idea what the timeline is or when one will be named or what they're doing about it but um I think it'll be an exciting thing to watch and uh and I have a lot of feelings obviously about leaving such a wonderful job and such a wonderful newspaper and it's really been an incredible ride but I have no doubts that I'm doing the right thing for myself. And amusingly, all of my oldest friends and my husband are like, finally, finally, it's time you did this. So people who know me for a long time know that this is something I've always wanted.
1: Well, we certainly congratulate you, and we are so excited for this this new chapter in your life. But we also would be remiss that we didn't acknowledge just your um candor and your your valiant efforts in terms of issues in in classical music such as diversity and um equality and things like that in opera um in terms of your successor, um, what are some of the things that you maybe look for in terms of maybe uh, carrying out those aspects? Because you have definitely been a voice in terms of, you know, being on panels and speaking about race and opera. Could you maybe talk about um, some of the things you maybe would hope to see?
0: It's it's hard for me to say because, you know, each person has to take the job and, and make it their own, really. Um and it's funny to think about the development of a of a social conscience. Um, the classical music job is so fraught with tradition and expectation that I think it's very common and I as a young critic have the same thing that, oh, I can't do that. You don't want to rock the boat, you know, that's not done. And I think the new generation today of critics is less Bound by tradition, much less bound by tradition, to the extent that tradition is very scared that it 's going to be forgotten in the you know, rush of the millennials but um, but so i I say that because I remember when the Vienna Philharmonic used to come to New York when I was first at the New York Times and 2001, 2002, and I was thinking, you know, how do you deal with the issue that there are no women? And uh, Justin Davidson came out at the, at, then he was at Newsday, I think still, and said he wasn't going to review the Vienna Philharmonic as long as there were no women in it. And I'm thinking, can you do that? And of course, I've traversed the complete arc, not full circle, but the polar opposite to where I'm very outspoken now and very happy to do exactly that. And I think these issues belong in coverage, but it took me a long time to sort of win the, the nerve, I guess, or the inner authority to think that I had a a place saying that. Um, I don't think I, I would hope that my successor is not so timid. Um, but I think the field desperately needs to open itself up to breathe the air, the same air as the rest of the world. Um, It's To touch on a question you asked earlier, it's another reason I believe also in in being tough and being candid. I don't think that classical music needs special protection, and I don't think we have to be scared of only saying nice things. I mean, the whole point is to review classical music just the way you review a book or a movie, and um, only, I think, by being really honest and saying what you dislike as well as what you like are you going to even interest people in what you say. The new generation doesn't want to just read platitudes about... Great artists they don't know about. They want to hear real opinions and some fire and something they can connect to and say, oh, if this person's passionate about it, maybe I would be too, you know. Or they want confirmation that the concert they saw last night was was uh, really as bad as they thought it was. You know, it doesn't help anybody if it's a lousy <laughs> concert and then the critic says, oh, well, it was really okay, you know. All that does is reinforce the belief of newcomers that this is really not for me because I thought that concert was lousy. <laughs> um so i would hope that my successor has you know the courage of his or her convictions and um and yeah i mean the same push for social justice classical music is way behind on as you said issues of diversity too i did i did together with my colleague peggy mcglone who remains the one of the arts reporters at the post we did a big piece on me too in classical music and um my, my one undone job is I would have loved to follow that up with a piece on racism and classical music and, you know, a lot of these questions that people sort of tiptoe around and the whole diversity issue is trumpeted in our field all the time without people actually realizing just how much the field has to change fundamentally to fix that problem. It's not a problem you fix by hiring two people of color and sort of saying, look, it's all okay. You have to really look at what you're performing, how you're performing it, what you're presenting, what you're messaging, and who your leaders are. Um, and the, critic is, the critic's job is to address all of those things and keep those things foremost in our mind and also make an effort to spotlight the people who are in the field, who sometimes get overlooked. Um, that's, again, something I realized I was guilty of at the beginning of my time at the Post and really tried to get a lot better about as time went on.
1: And thank you so much. It's been a true joy to have you on today for this uh, installment of the Conversation Series. And we certainly wish you the best in all of your endeavors. And thank you so much for your your voice in classical music.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be on here. I always enjoy talking to you. great day. Thank you so
1: much. (laughs) Again, this has been Across the Arts with Patrick D. McCoy. We've been speaking with Chief Classical Music Critic of the Washington Post, Anne Majette. Have a great day.